So these last few weeks of Lent have been good for me. I don't know if you've been uh, doing anything particularly special for Lent, but one of the things that I um, did as a season, at the end of the season of discipleship was uh, to take on another time of prayer. So setting a, a noonday prayer where I would stop, or the best I can, stop what I'm doing um, in the middle of the day and to pray and to ask God for guidance for the rest of the day, to pray for many of you and for things that you're going through. Um, so it's been good. And also, too, as part of Lent, I've been, we've been moving through Revelation together, uh, especially listening or walking alongside John and his messages, or actually Jesus' messages, to the seven churches in Revelation, the seven churches of Asia Minor. And the last few weeks, um, it's been good for me. It's been challenging. Um, not only is Revelation, uh, there's lots there to study, but also, too, the messages. Um, we remember two weeks ago when we were listening to the Lord's message to the church in Ephesus, when he encouraged them, he ordered them to, to remember from the height from which they had fallen, to repent and to return to the things they did at first, to return to their first love because they had left their first love. It's been challenging for me. And then last week, listening to the Lord's message to the church in Smyrna, another church in modern-day Turkey, where he encouraged them to do not fear or to not be afraid of the, the persecution that they were about to face. And I remember, if those of you here last week, I really wish Jesus would have said, uh, do not be afraid because I'm going to fix everything. But actually he says, do not be afraid for what you're going to go through. He says, actually, remain faithful even to the point of death. So all these things, of these two churches so far listening and studying have been good and have been challenging for me. And this morning we come to the church in Thyatira. Now, for those of you who know Revelation, you'll know that we've passed over the church of Pergamum. But we're going to, uh, we only have the few weeks, so we're going to do this church and then we're going to listen to what the Lord says to Laodicea in two weeks. So just a few of the churches. So we're going to be listening to what the Lord says to the church in Thyatira. And it's interesting, as I've been listening to what uh, Jesus is saying to this church, uh, I realized something. When I first started reading it, I don't know if you've read it, many of you have read it a few times, but when I first started reading I thought, whoa, these guys are going to get it. This church is in big trouble. I mean, they've got this woman, or this prophetess woman who Jesus calls Jezebel, and she's misleading them, and it sounds really bad. But then as I started reading some more, I realized too, and actually it was one of the, the commentators I was reading, um, Grant Osborne, who's a professor, he said, you know, actually it's interesting because it's sort of this church that's split in the sense that you have some really good things happening. Because when he says, I know your works, he talks about their love and their faithfulness, about their service and their perseverance, and actually that their, their faithfulness had been growing is even more, uh, more faithfulness now than it was at the beginning. But then he says, I have this against you. So there's this church that's split, and it's interesting for me as I start thinking about uh, the church around the world. And the ways the church around the world is in some ways split this way. We have some people, sometimes I read the news or I hear about our brothers and sisters and the things that they do or say, and I'm so discouraged. I'm so discouraged. But then I read about or I hear stories of our other brothers and sisters, and I hear about their faithfulness and their love and their service and their perseverance, and I am encouraged. So not only do I see this split as I was reading about the church in Thyatira, listening to the Lord's message there, but I, I see it even in the church today. But then I started thinking about it in terms of Lent, about me, and about the ways that I live this split too. And I hear the Lord sometimes saying to me or encouraging me, Jason, I know your good works, your love and your faithfulness and your service and your perseverance. 
But then when I'm honest, especially at the time I went, I hear the Lord saying, but also, Jason, you know, these are the ways that you compromise. These are the ways that you don't live um, the faith in front of everybody like you would uh, maybe live on Monday morning differently than you might on Sunday. And so it's been challenging for me, too, as I listen to this message to the church in Thyatira. I wonder if many of you wrestle with that. Wrestle with that, you know, like the... We know how Jesus called us to live, and yet there are times in our lives when we feel compelled, like, oh, I've got to cut this corner. Or we hear ourselves saying, like, I know this is the way the Bible said we're supposed to live, but this is real life, and we have, it just doesn't, it's not ideal like the Bible, and we have to do what we have to do to make ends meet or to, to survive. I don't know if any of you have those same questions, those same struggles. And it's interesting as we've been listening to Thyatira about this, this call. I hear from the Holy Spirit calling us to live faithfully, to not compartmentalize, to not compromise, to not justify the times when we cut corners, but to live faithfully for the Lord. So if you would, open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. Also, it's in your bulletin as well, uh, this white sheet, if you'd like to read there. Before we begin uh, reading, can we pray together to ask the Lord's help in understanding? Father in heaven, Lord Jesus, and Holy Spirit, we pray for your help. Lord, help us to see, to understand these words that you have spoken uh, to our brothers and sisters over 2,000 years ago. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd help us to understand and that you'd help us to know and to hear your word for us today, that again you would speak to your church. We pray this in your mighty name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So Jesus, speaking to John on the island of Patmos, where he was exiled, gave this vision. He said, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one, I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will pay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teachings and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does the will of and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So as we've been studying these these messages that the Lord gives to these churches, we've been beginning with the background or the situation surrounding the, the story of that particular city. And so Thyatira uh, in its history was, it began as a, as a military post. 
And so it kind of grew up as the military, there was supplying all their, their, their weapons and their leather and their clothes. It became more of a blue-collar town. And there was lots of trade guilds. So if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, we talked about these trade guilds. Trade guilds were something like a union that would form in a particular town. So all the tanners, all the potters, they would each have their own guild, their own union. These unions went right across the Roman Empire. And they were a way of, of keeping things in check. Probably one, like we have uh, certifications today to make sure there was quality of work, but also to kind of control who gets in and who gets out. It's a means of, of making sure that people don't come in and maybe ruin the reputation of your town's uh, pottery guild or of your town's uh, bronze working guild. So you had these guilds and they have tons of pressure around them. So if you weren't in the guild, things were tough for you. Other businesses might undercut you. They might try to force you out. They might tell people not to go to your shop. So if you weren't in part of these guilds, it was difficult for you. It's hard to make a living. But there's a problem for Christians with these guilds. First of all, they would often have these annual dinners or they'd have these dinners throughout the year where they would get together to kind of consolidate everybody, to bring everybody together and remind them we are together. Nobody does this on their own. So it's a means a bit of control. But also they would get together and they would worship a patron god of the guild. Often in, in, Greek, in, in the Greek uh, culture, they would have a god who is sort of their, their patron god over their guild. So, for example, the bronze guild, the, the metal workers, theirs was the god Apollo. And we'll get to more of that in a moment. So what they would do is they'd go to these, these temples and they would have a feast. They would have a dinner. Now, you might think like, well, okay, I feel uncomfortable going to a temple. That seems wrong. But they would also eat food. And this food wasn't just food that they brought from the grocery store and prepared. There was actually food that was animals that were brought and sacrificed at the temple. They would become idol food, meat sacrificed to the god. And so the guilds would get around. And these, I've, in other churches, like many of you have read maybe the book or the, the letter to the church in Corinth, they had an issue there with idol food. And see, we, we live in a completely different time, so it's hard for us to understand. But in the first century, uh, the, the temples, because of all the sacrifices, they became almost like the butcher shop of the community. That's where you would get the food. That's where you'd get meat. And so you have these, these trade guilds where they would go, almost like a restaurant, they would go to these temples and they would have a feast. And they would, they would talk about their guild business and they would uh, pay homage to the god of their, their patron god of their, of their guild. And so they would include this idol food. So for a Christian, eating food that's been offered to a different false god, to an idol, you can imagine the problems that begin. But not only that, but they would have oftentimes a ceremony where you would actually pay homage, where you may burn incense or offer a piece of the food to the god. You can imagine how horrifying this was for a Christian, for a follower of Jesus who says, no, Jesus is the one God, the Lord God, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, this is the one true God. But not only that, but these dinners oftentimes would just totally degrade. Lots of alcohol, people eating. And sometimes part of like different temples would include uh, prostitutes, temple prostitutes. Uh, some of the priestesses, as they would call them, would come and part of the rite or the ritual would be to have sex with them. And so you have these dinners where not only is there, off, or is there worship of God, eating idol food, there's also, they would totally um, degrade into uh, just sexual mess. And so you can imagine how horrible this is for a Christian. You can't even go close to this thing. 
So this is part of what's happening in Thyatira. They had some of the, the most uh, numerous guilds in, in the Roman Empire. But not only that, but they also were famous for their worship of the god Apollo. And for those of you, don't worry about your Greek <laughs> mythology, but Apollo was the son of Zeus. Zeus was the, in the Greek uh, pantheon of gods, the most high god. So his title was son of the most high, the most high god. And so you have this temple in Thyatira to Apollo. Not only that, but the Roman emperor, the Roman emperors or the Caesars, they, they saw this connection. And if many of you, the last couple of weeks, we've talked about how emperors, the, the Caesars, they would try to claim for themselves that they were God and try and convince their, their people, the empire, that they were God and made them worship as a way to consolidate power and make sure everybody went along with what you said. So, you have Apollo, who's the famous uh, god, the, the kind of patron god of Thyatira. And then you've got the Roman emperor at the time, probably Domitian, um, who was a Caesar at the time, calling himself God, uh, the son of God. And he even named his son, one of his sons, the son of God. So there's all this conversation. There's all these different groups competing for the title son of God. Not only that, but you've got uh, worship of Apollo in Thyatira. They've got a temple there, and so these Thyatirans who would faithfully worship the God of Apollo, you can imagine how difficult this becomes once you realize that Jesus is the one true God. But you begin following Jesus as Lord and Savior. So these are some of the things that are happening in Thyatira, and it's into this situation that Jesus speaks to the church. And if you look at your white sheet, it's right at the top at verse uh, 18. It says, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. How fitting for Jesus to write this to a church where there's so much competition for who's the Son of God, to remind them that he is the true Son of God. Not Apollo, definitely not Caesar, but Jesus. And it says he is the one whose eyes are burning like flames and his feet are like burnished bronze. And I don't know, this is really just a guess on my part, so take it with a grain of salt. But that his feet are like burnished bronze, it's, for me, I think it's a bit of a stab too at, at Apollo because he was the patron god of the bronze workers. It's not a helmet, it's not a head, not a, a headpiece or like a piece of honor, but his feet. His feet are bronze. And I don't know, I just wonder if there's some connection. But I also realize this, that as much as I might be interested in speculating about the, the way that the Son of God and bronze feet uh, plays out in Thyatira, I do know that these are references to the Old Testament. And that's the place we should begin. When Jesus says, I am the Son of God, I, I don't know about you, but I hear Psalm 2. This was a famous psalm throughout uh, Israel, and especially uh, the Christian church began seeing this applying to Jesus. Many of you have, uh, we've talked some about it. many of you have read Psalm 2 a lot, but there's this famous part where um, it's a coronation of a king. And you hear the Lord speaking. He says, uh, you are my son, and today I have become your father. And there's this connection, and actually that's the same words that we connected to with Jesus at his baptism. When Jesus came up out of the water, a voice from heaven said, you are my son, whom I love, and you I'm so pleased. And there's this connection with Psalm 2 because Psalm 2 goes on to explain that this king of, of God, the son of God, would go to rule the nations, that he would be the great 
Messiah, the Savior who would come. So not only do we have this connection with Psalm 2, but also if you read or as you're listening, I don't know if anybody heard it, but in uh, eyes are blazing eyes of fire and uh, legs of burnished bronze, it's actually, there's a, a connection there too with this, this man that Daniel saw in Daniel 10, this figure across or on the Tigris River when he was uh, kneeling there. It talked about a, a figure, a man who had a white robe and a gold sash and a face uh, bright and shining like lightning and eyes like fire and legs like burnished bronze and a voice like the multitudes. And in this uh, vision of Daniel, this one that he sees, it tells him about the future that's coming. It tells Daniel and it reminds him that God is in control. Even though things seem like chaos and this king goes against that king and that king goes against this king, Ultimately, God is in control. Jesus is in control. So it's important that Jesus says, I am the Son of God. In this community, who have these questions, different people saying that they were Son of God. It's also important that Jesus says that I uh, uh, have these eyes of fire and burnished bronze legs. Reminds us of this figure in Daniel, this one in Daniel that reminds us that God is in control. So this is the, the background that we hear. This is the, the, some of the things that are going on in Thyatira. And it's into this that Jesus says, I know your works, I know your deeds. And as we start going into it, there's this good news, bad news, good news pattern. So he talks about the things, the things that I know that you're doing well. And then he talks about the things that we, he had against them, mainly that their tolerance of this, this woman who claimed to be a prophetess, this woman who claimed to be a teacher who was leading people astray. And then at the end, he comes back and he says, um, but I know there's some of you who don't follow her, and I don't add anything onto you. So there's this good news, bad news, good news. Well, this morning, just to make things a little bit easier, we're just going to start with the bad news and then go to the good news, okay? So the bad news with this one is, he says, I know um, that you tolerate this woman, Jezebel. And I don't know, her name might really be Jezebel, but I'm pretty sure, or my hunch is that, that Jesus is saying, referring to her as Jezebel, as the Jezebel of the Old Testament. In 1 Kings, the wife of Ahab, she was from Sidon, uh, not a Jewish uh, place. And when she was married to Ahab, she brought her religion with her and forced it on the people of Israel. The worship of Baal, God of creation, uh, Phoenician God. Killed the Lord's prophets. Uh, underwrote uh, some 850 of her own prophets. Set up uh, places of worship in Samaria. Horrible stuff. And kind of on the official level would say, well, you can worship Yahweh, your God, and you can worship Baal. Worship both. But underneath that, which is even that is horrible, but underneath that she was killing those who who challenged her or who were not willing to to leave uh, Yahweh. Those who were not willing to, to leave him and to worship Baal. So this is the just a brief sketch of, of her, and you can read more on that in 1 Kings. But so you have this woman who is leading the people of Israel astray. And so I think we have Jesus saying, this woman, this prophetess in your church is doing something similar. She is leading the servants of the Lord astray. And it talks specifically, it said, in terms of sexual immorality and eating of idle food. For those of you, we just talked about the, uh, the trade guilds and how they would eat idle food. Jesus is saying, this woman is leading you astray. Now, the, the sexual fornication, it might actually be literal sexual fornication. 
Illicit sex. Sex outside of marriage. It might mean that. It very easily could mean that. But I also think it's referring to unfaithfulness spiritually as well. Because in the Old Testament, one of the ways that God describes the people of Israel and then when they were unfaithful or they would worship other gods, he, gods, he called it sexual fornication or sexual illicit sex. They were being unfaithful to the Lord God. So I see this connection here, but also to the idol meat, and they begin to fit together. Because eating food to an idol in the ancient world was a way of paying honor to that God. It was a way of recognizing that God and honoring them. Now, it's interesting because this uh, woman, trying to piece together what sort of ways that she was leading people astray. You know, what, she was, what, what was she teaching? You know, and how could she teach it? I mean, how could anybody following Jesus think it would be right to worship another god? I mean, it just seems ludicrous. So there must have been something that she was saying. And, you know, it's, it's hard to piece it together, but the, some of the best answers I've heard is that she was probably teaching them, maybe something like the teachers in Corinth were talking about when Paul wrote the letter to the church there in Corinth about idol food, that there were some who were saying, you know, these aren't actually idols. We believe in Jesus and, and Yahweh, the one true God and the Holy Spirit. These aren't actually gods. They're nothing. They're just wooden carvings. And because they're nothing, then we could go and eat. Because we're not actually, we could go and not actually worship the God. Maybe we go through the motions, but we don't actually worship the God. We worship Jesus. But it's okay for us to do this. This idea of compromising. Rationalizing it. You know, not actually worshiping the other God. I'm just there at the meal because it's good for my business. I think this is what she was teaching. And this, this was something that happened in the church uh, in the, even in the beginning. And there's actually grew throughout the church in the first and second century. It's called Gnosticism. You don't need to worry about that. But basically it's a teaching that, that the body doesn't matter. It's just what we do spiritually. It's a way of compartmentalizing life. So what people would effectively say is, in my spirit, I believe in Jesus and I follow him. But in life, because the body doesn't matter, then it doesn't really matter what I do. I don't really have to like follow him. And actually, I can kind of go along with the rest of the culture, fit in, go to the idol dinners, be a part of the guilds, do well in business. I can do that and still be faithful to Jesus. And the scriptures are saying you can't do that. We can't play both worlds. And part of how I get this is because it says in verse 24, it says that um, when Jesus says, those of you who do not, or those of you who do not follow this woman and the, the deep things of Satan, there's this, there's this idea that this deep things of Satan are kind of like the idea that um, you kind of have to know what's evil. Like if you have, you can overcome it by being a part of it. So if you go to these dinners and you're, you're part of the festivities and yet you still follow Jesus, that you somehow overcome it. There's a way of rationalizing. But what it didn't realize is even though there are no other gods, there is no God Apollo. There is no God Artemis. Caesar is not God and whoever else they are not God. There is only one true God. That is true. Those are just wooden statues. But you know what? There are demons behind them. That's what Paul was teaching his church. That's what Paul was teaching the Christians in Corinth. You're right. They are not gods. They're just wooden statues. Don't worry about that. But there are demons who use them to mislead people. Do not be a part of it. Do not offer worship to other gods. 
And I started thinking about me as I listened to this, as I'm, you know, because we don't, I mean, there's no other, well, maybe there are other temples, I don't know about them, in our community. I don't feel any pressure at all to worship other gods. But I do feel idols in my life. I do feel pressure in my life to fit in with the world around us. I don't know, maybe some of you do too. Pressure to cut corners. You know, business is a great example. Business is a great example. You know, so many of the the businesses around us, you know, they aren't run by people who are following Jesus. And so they, they play by a different set of rules. You know, you've heard that saying, well, you've got to do this to compete. Everybody else is doing it. If you don't cut this corner like everybody else does, then you're too expensive and you lose business. We feel this pressure, this pressure to conform, to cut corners, to compromise. What about the way we handle money? I mean, like tax season is coming up. You know, that's a pretty famous one, <laughs> cutting corners, <laughs> compromising. Oh, it's, it's what everybody's doing. It's, I mean, it's not legal, but it's what everybody does, so it, it should be okay. I mean, I still follow Jesus. It's just on that thing. I mean, this is, this is real life. I have to do it. I think we too wrestle with, with compromises in our culture. We feel this pressure, this pressure to go along with the crowd, to not stand up and say, you know, I think on this issue, the Lord God has given us uh, a way forward. He has given us clear direction. It's hard to stand up and say that, especially on difficult things. Like uh, this morning, I was just reading an article about um, about a physician-assisted suicide. And it's really complicated, really complicated. I mean, but they were talking, there was an article about, about children, about how does that law apply to children. I mean, you can just imagine the mess if you've got a five-year-old who is terminally ill and in excruciating pain, who gets the right, or who has the right to choose whether that child lives or not? Does the child, the five-year-old, do their parents, do the doctors? It's just a mess. But I believe God has given us a way forward. God has given us a direction on issues like this. And we stand up and we say, you know, I think God is for life. As difficult as it is. As difficult as it is, God is for life. I mean, all, all kinds of other issues that are hot topics in our culture these days. There's tons of pressure for us to compromise, to fit in. And so this is what Jesus says. He's saying to this, I have this against you, church in Thyatira, is that you are compromising. You are compartmentalizing. This woman, Jezebel, is leading you astray, and some of you are following her because you want to. Maybe because it's good for business. Maybe because it makes life easier. But it's not good for them. The consequences for Jezebel was a bed of sickness. Those that followed her were going to go through a great tribulation. And her children, I'm guessing, I mean, maybe he means literally her children. Could be. Maybe he means those like her children, her students who follow her. They're going to lead to death. Death in this life and death in the second, or the second death. But ultimately, they would not live forever with Christ because of their, their idolatries. 
That's the bad news. The good news is, is that there is also faithful people in this church. I have this image in, of this church kind of dotted line right down the middle. Some who were listening to this false teacher and following her. Many who were not. Remember in the beginning, Jesus begins by saying, I know your deeds, your love, your faithful love, your agape love, your faithfulness. How you keep following, how you keep following me even though it's hard for you. Faithfulness. And your service to others. He says, I know your perseverance. And in Revelation, it's hupomene, but it's the idea of perseverance usually means perseverance in the face of persecution. Jesus says, I know your perseverance. And he says this, that your deeds now are greater than they were at first. Which is interesting, kind of the opposite of Ephesus, right? In Ephesus, they had left their first love, and yet in Smyrna, Jesus says, I know your love. And in Ephesus, Jesus says, return to your first deeds, which were greater in the beginning. And here in Smyrna, he says, your deeds now, the things you're doing out of your faithfulness, are actually greater now than they were at the beginning. So there's good things happening in this church. And as I think about the good things that are happening, the the ways that their works are more now than they were at the beginning, I think of two things. First of all, is that they're actually more faithful. There are some in that church that are growing in their relationship with Jesus and living faithfully, even in the face of persecution. But I also think about this, that even though there was lots of activity, increasing activity, there was still real trouble in the church. Being active, doing lots of stuff, doesn't necessarily, does not necessarily equate to health or faithfulness. We can be really busy and not be a healthy church. But then I hear Jesus say, to these group, to this group who continue to follow him, who do not follow this teaching of this woman, he says, I don't add anything else onto you but rather hold fast to that which you have. Hold fast to the faith that you have, to your love, to your faithfulness, to your service, and to your perseverance. Hold fast to those and keep growing in your good deeds, in your good work. And I start hearing this for us, especially in the season of Lent. And this is one of the reasons why I love the season of Lent. Not because it's easy, but because it's good. Because it challenges us. I hear the Holy Spirit challenging me, and I'm thinking maybe some of us, some of you, challenging us in the ways that we compromise. Challenging us in the times we are tempted to cut corners because everyone else around us is. When we are tempted to compartmentalize. This is my spiritual life, and I don't really let that mix with my work life. Or this is my, this is my devotional life. And I keep that pretty quiet away from my circle of friends because they all think I'm crazy for being a Christian, so I don't talk about it much in front of them. I hear the Holy Spirit challenging me and maybe us as a church not to compromise, not to compartmentalize, not to justify. But then there's this one last part where Jesus has good news. He said, to those of you who overcome, I'll give you authority over the nations. It's pretty amazing. (laughs) Right? Authority over the nations. Not only do we have a Lord, a Messiah, who is Lord over the nations already, 
But he draws us into that too. We participate with him in that. Think about this in terms of Thyatira, these people who are on the outs, these people who can't go to the trade guild dinners so their businesses are suffering, they are persecuted. And yet Jesus says, one day you will rule over the nations. Think about that reversal. Maybe some of you are in a similar place. Things are horrible right now. You feel like the screws are just being put to you. I want to remind you of the reversal. That one day you'll have authority over the nations. And then Jesus makes this quote. If you look, it's right at verse 27, right at the bottom. It's sort of offset. It says, He will rule them, the one who overcomes, he will rule them with an iron scepter. He'll dash them to pieces with pottery. Does anybody recognize where that verse comes from? It comes from Psalm 2, like we were talking about at the beginning. I was listening to a professor who teaches about Revelation, and he was saying, if you're going to study Revelation, you need to have one of those books with the, with the scriptures listed next to it, all the references, since it's absolutely critical because so much of Revelation comes out of the Old Testament quotes. I mean, it's understandable, right? I mean, John, this follower of Jesus, exiled on Patmos, faithful Jewish man who becomes a Christian, steeped in the scriptures. That he naturally speaks the scriptures when he writes or when he tells the, the, the people of these churches, these stories, or these messages. I hear Psalm 2, and this is a quote to Psalm 2. But not only do we have a great Messiah who is Lord over all the nations, but he draws us, makes us rule alongside him. That's amazing news. So this morning I hear... I hear Jesus saying that I am the Son of God. In a world that has all these different people competing for that title, Jesus says that he is the Son of God. He is the one with eyes like fire and legs like burnished bronze. He reminds us that, um, drawing from Daniel 10, that he is the one who is in control. That even as crazy and as chaotic as things get, when, when wars happen and one side um, attacks another and they attack back and forth, God is still in control. And he reminds us to be faithful. To not go along with those who tell us, you know, it's okay to kind of compromise here and here and here just to get through. He reminds us it's not okay to compartmentalize that on Sundays I'm a Christian, but the rest of the week I got to do what I got to do. That's not faith. He reminds us of that, that we are split, that many of us wrestle with compromises in our life even today. Yet we are still doing good things. We are a mix of of redeemed and still needing repentance. I hear God speaking to our church. I hear God speaking to me this week. Amen.